So Happy New Year, brothers and sisters of the English congregation. It's great to be here every New Year, especially in the beginning of the year. And I pray that everyone uh, here will grow in faith. And your growth will manifest in all that you do, that you will bring glory to God in this year and beyond, of course. And in the new year, several brothers and sisters asked me about the annual theme of our church. Well, in fact, I am not someone who is really big on annual theme of a church. I mean, after all, our unchanged theme has been bestowed upon us. As a church, in the generations after generations, we have the same theme, which is to proclaim the word. Be prepared in season or out of season. Our direction or mandate has been clearly given to us when Jesus made the Great Commission to the church. Well, but I also agree, under some certain, like special circumstances, that an annual theme can be valuable. And for the special circumstances, I refer to those times that a church goes through some difficulties, both externally or internally, and is distracted from carrying out the Great Commission as its primary objective. So I believe, and so do many of us, I'm pretty sure, that we were in this kind of special circumstance over the last two or three years. Therefore, under the gracious guidance of our Lord, I hope that 2016 will be a year that we can refocus on the mandate of the church and the value of our existence. I sincerely hope that this year we will humble ourselves, open our hearts, so that we can reflect on our pain, learn from our experience in order not to let history repeat itself, not to let God's name be dishonored, and not to let this opportunity to rebuild to go in vain. Therefore, a couple of months ago, the pastoral team went to a staff retreat in order to pray to God and receive from Him a direction or theme for our church in 2016. At the end of the retreat, all pastors from English congregation, Cantonese and, and Mandarin, uh, we unanimously agree that the word reboot is very appropriate as our theme this year. Well, the word reboot, as you know, is a computer terminology. It means that when your computer was slowed down or frozen by some hardware or software issues, that you need to restart the whole machine like you, you're so frustrated. You want to bang the machine and, and in hope that it will function normally again. In the past two years, many of you have prayed for our church, especially pray that God will bring a closure to all the lawsuits that we were facing. But I want to ask you, why did you pray such a prayer for the church? Was it because those lawsuits bother you? Or you were really praying that the church will be able to focus back on the Great Commission again, to evangelize our community? Well, now that God has answered our prayers, and most of these distractions are over now, well, now, what would you do to respond to God's gracious answer to our prayers? 
Well, reboot is for us to take a step back and try to understand why we need a reboot in the first place. Why we had become so vulnerable, why our spiritual immune system had become so defenseless, and why our discernment capability had been so obscure. The process to reboot is to find out what went wrong and fix it if there is a resolution. Otherwise, the computer's functionality will continue to go down and one day it will lose all its functionality and will become a worthless piece of scrap. It can happen to a computer. It can also happen to a church. In Revelation 5, Jesus was issuing a warning to the church of Ephesus. And Jesus said, Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus said, if you do not reboot, if you do not reflect and find out what went wrong and repent and fix it, if you do not do that, well, one day He will come to us and take away our chance to reboot again. Every time we can reflect on our past and to rebuild or restart, it's a grace. It's an opportunity. It means that God has not removed our lampstand from its place. So therefore, brothers and sisters, I hope that today's scripture, which is from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 11, will become a standard or blueprint for us so that as we reflect or reboot, we are not aiming at the thin air or using our flesh and blood as our standard. We will use God's word recorded to us by his apostle Peter as our guideline. So I'm going to ask Michael right now to read to us this precious passage in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 11. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 11 reads, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never fail, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let us all pray together. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for these precious words, these powerful and life-changing words that you have inspired Peter to record down. So I ask that in your mercy and grace, you will bring us into the reality of these words 
that reveal your will like never before. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Peter is someone who has made mistakes, some terrible ones, such as denying his Lord three times. But he also repented, and Jesus also allowed him to reboot and pick up his role as apostle again. As a result, Peter is someone who fully understands the grace and mercy in every single chance to reboot. Peter has written a couple of letters to churches at his time, and their name, wow, so creative, First and Second Peter. And I think I should never again spend time on thinking my sermon title. Like my next sermon title, Michael O'Verna, will be 23 Sam. Like, you will be so frustrated. Like, good luck in finding the right song. In this letter called Second Peter, Peter knew that his life is coming to an end very soon. He is going to be martyred. As Peter was approaching death, there were many things he could write to the churches, such as encouraging them to love God more, or to be bold in spreading the gospel, etc. But he chose to exhort his readers to be all the more eager to make their calling and election sure in the midst of contamination from false teachers and attacks from outside. Church is to be all the more eager to make our calling and election sure. Church is to hold firmly on our mandate not drift away from it. So Peter exhorted his readers, including us, in verse 3, he said, His, God's divine power, has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. When Peter said, he, what Peter said here, using our modern terminology, was that if you want to reboot, well, you first have to plug in the power and make sure the source of power is in place. If you do not plug in, there's no way you can reboot, no matter how many times you press the restart button. So this power for church was already given to us when we were called into existence. When we, VCBC, was established in Vancouver 60, 46 years ago, this power was already given to us. In other words, God's divine power is the spiritual birthright of church and of us Christians. It came with our conversion into the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It does not depend on how many people, how many members we have. It doesn't depend on how we perform. It doesn't depend on how many pastors we have or how many ministries we have. No. We don't need to qualify to receive this divine power. Absolutely not. It's when we are called, when we don't know much about God, when we have no credit to claim, or even when we were still struggling with the sinful nature of our old self, God has already given us this divine power, which in turn gave us everything 
we need for life and godliness. In fact, this translation can be simplified a little bit for more clarity. It's that God's divine power will give us everything we need for godly life. Now, before I go further, I want to, I want to make a distinction between cost and purpose. When God gives us something or anything, we say that it's costless to us. But not to Him, but to us. It's costless. There's no cost. We don't need to pay anything or do anything to earn God's grace to us. Whether it's our salvation or blessings or power and so on. However, although there is no cost to us, it doesn't mean that God's grace to us is without purpose to us. From this line of Peter's word, we do not need to do anything to earn God's divine power. It comes with our spiritual birth. But even though there's no cost to us, it doesn't mean that this divine power upon us has no purpose for us. Out of God's grace, we were bestowed with this divine power which in essence can create lives, save lives, and transform lives. Upon receiving this power, we are given a purpose, a purpose with it, to live a godly life. I mean, we all want God's power, don't we? We desire that God uses His almighty power to bless us, to help us, and to protect us. We mere humans face so many things in life that are beyond our control. So it's understandable that we all desire some form of God's power for our benefit. But think about it. What do we want God's power for? What do we want God's blessings for? What kind of life do we want to build with God's power and blessings? Well, most of us want to benefit from God's power, God's divine power, in order to build maybe a comfortable life, a wealthy life maybe, a secure life, a healthy life, a life with accomplishment, a life that makes other people envy, or so on. What kind of life you are trying to achieve today? If you don't know, you can start from looking at your prayers. What are you asking God these days? For all these things that you ask God for yourself, and when they all add up, what kind of life is that? It's the same thing for our church. We pray that God will give His divine power and strength to our church. But when we pray for God's power, what kind of church are we thinking of? A church that satisfies our needs? A church that makes us proud? What kind of life are we praying for VCBC? Too many times we want to receive power and blessings from God in order to build a life that desired and defined by ourselves. Subtly, we are taking over this authority to define life from God. 
This is an act of rebellion against God. But, God's, God's word is good and it's true. It gives us a way out when we are drifting away from God's way. The Bible tells us that the kind of life that God desires us from us is godly life. And he pays so much importance and attention on it that he would unconditionally give us his divine power so that we can achieve that. This is how God defines the nature of life. Godliness. The definition of life might not be how we want to define it. And such discrepancy towards life might be the reason that we become vulnerable and defenseless. And this issue is where we need to have a reboot. Like a computer. When it's given power, it's supposed to be doing all sorts of programming. Programming is how a life of computer is supposed to be. It's how a computer is defined. But if you insist to change its definition of life, like you would plug in and give, in, give it power, and then you insist that you want to cook with your computer, then at the end, not only you would continue to starve, you would also ruin and destroy your computer. Would you agree that we all need a reboot? Please take it seriously and personally. I'm not saying anything that is irrelevant to you now. Or I should say the word of the Bible is, I'm not saying that it's irrelevant to you. I plead to you that you would take Peter's word seriously and personally. And then Peter goes on to describe how godly life is like. In verse 5 and 7, he continues to say, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Here, Peter listed eight examples of godly virtue. However, I'm, I have no intention to explain uh, each of them or, or help define them to you. There's no point. It's because the nature of a virtue is supposed to be inclusive rather than exclusive. The nature of a virtue is supposed to be wide open than narrowly defined. For example, self-control. We, don't, we do not need to investigate what I need to exercise self-control or what not to. Also, like brotherly kindness, we do not need to concern how to define brother. What sisters? Do I need to be kind to him if I don't consider him a brother? We don't need to be worried about that. I mean, this attempt to narrowly defining virtue is already against the nature of virtue. It will be legalistic. Therefore, instead of these eight different uh, kinds of virtue, what I want us to focus on today is the phrase at the beginning of this paragraph. When Peter calls us to make every effort. Peter has done a very good job in striking the right balance between God's gift and human's responsibility. God has graced us His divine power. But we also have our responsibility which is to make every effort 
to live a godly life. Peter said, for this very reason, for the fact that God has given us everything we need for godly life, for the fact that all the resources we need for living a godly life, God has already sufficiently provided and gifted us so that we need to make every effort, try our utmost, involve our every cell and every fiber to pursue living a godly life. To hold firmly that our lives are defined by one and only one thing, and this thing is called godliness. It's our core, our orientation, our value system. It's everything. Also, those other kinds of life, of life, like comfortable life, secure life, a wealthy life, all have to give way to godly life. You and I should be most interested, most eager to pursue godly life. Our conversation should surround the topic of godliness. Some people might mistakenly think that godly life is only for those spiritual elites. Well, first of all, if there is really such thing called spiritual elites or spiritual level, like Nintendo game or something. But most importantly, this thinking is wrong. What determines godliness in our lives is not our spiritual level, but our spiritual attitudes. The Bible says that God has given us everything we need for godly life. It means that in our pursuit of godliness, no one will lack the necessary resources. Whether you are a new believer or you are a seasoned Christian, whether you have just joined a Sunday school or you have a seminary degree, it doesn't matter. Godliness is not about your spiritual level, it's your spiritual attitude. If you don't have the right attitude, if you don't see godliness as important in your life, then this is what undermines your relationship with God. And take note in this verse that how God measures our godliness is not based on how or what we have achieved or performed. It's not. But how much effort we have paid, how hard we have tried, let me repeat that. In this verse, we have to take note that God, how God measures our godliness is not based on how or what we have achieved or how we have performed. No. But how much effort we have paid, how hard we have tried. In other words, in godliness, God does not look at how good we are or how outperforming we are. <laughs> In godliness, God looks at how obedient we are, how loyal we are. The question is never how good we have done. The question is always how diligently or how hard we have tried. When we say we believe in God, we have faith in God. Well, faith is a thing that's internal and invisible. Therefore, when the Bible describes a relationship between a human and a God, and God. It doesn't just use the term faith or belief. Like Matthew 7, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
relationship between a human and God is never just about faith without recognizing obedience. Faith is internal and invisible. Obedience will always lead to external and visible actions. I'll give you an example. For those who are parents, you would have experience um, in asking or commanding or issuing a decree to your kids to clean up their rooms. What if your kid tells you, Daddy, Mommy, I believe in cleaning rooms. But he or she never cleans up. Now what would you think? Or what if your, your kid tells you, Daddy and Mommy, I don't just believe in cleaning up. I mean, I believe in it, but I don't just believe in it. I also get together with a few friends to study the true meaning and nature of cleaning up. And then we discuss about the promise and hope that cleanup will bring to us. But then, he or she still never cleans up. What would you feel? Okay, what if he or she even challenges you back? Asking you, Daddy and Mommy, do you know what Kafarisi is? Kafarisi. Well, while you, you have no idea what it is and scratching your head, he tells you, well, this is the word clean up in original Greek. <laughs> but then he still refuses to clean up. Would you feel pleased? Obedience will always lead to proper action. It's visible. That's why Peter continues to exhort us. He said, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Peter just before his imminent martyrdom, exhorts the church that we need to live out godliness in increasing measure. God doesn't just say through Peter that we need to possess these virtues such as faith, God, goodness, knowledge, self-control, kindness, or love. No, God says that in all these godly virtues, we need not only to possess them, but to grow unceasingly. We never stop pursue growth in godliness. Again, this is not about how much we have grown. It's about how consistently and how hard we try to grow. The question is not whether we have godliness. The question is whether we always try to grow in godliness. There's no upper limit in godliness. There's no ceiling on how godly you can be. Your faith can never be too much. Your knowledge will never be perfect. Your love will never be complete. Godliness is based on a desire to grow, to ever growing in all these virtues. Godliness is opposite to self-righteousness thinking that we are good enough, spiritual enough, and that we stop seeking growth or breakthrough, and then we become satisfied with our status. If we are like this, if we have got rid of the desire to grow in godliness, 
Peter warned us that we will become ineffective and unproductive. These two adjectives have different implications. Ineffective means useless or cease to be useful. Unproductive means fruitless or ceases to bear fruit. The whole sentence means that it's, it is God's grace and gift that we come to know Christ as our Lord and we become saved by His redeeming work. If we commit ourselves to live a godly life, we would always, if we always pursue growth in our godly lives so that our knowledge in Christ and His salvation will not be wasted in our life. Peter is not reproaching the church. He is instead encouraging brothers and sisters like you and I. Peter said to us, if we stop to grow in godliness, if we become satisfied in our own spiritual condition, then we have become nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been or we have been cleansed from our past sins. These three symptoms here, nearsightedness, blindness, and amnesia, we have distorted views towards the past, the present, and the future. Therefore, Peter continues to exhort the church, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This phrase here, all the more eager, is the same as the phrase, make every effort, in verse 5. Peter repeated the call for us to try our very best to make our every effort in this pursuit of godliness. We need to pay attention here that Peter is not saying that we have to be godly in order to receive God's calling and election. No. What Peter means here is that through making every effort to live a godly life, through being all the more eager to grow in godliness, we then not be called or elected because we are already called and elected, but we'll make our calling and election sure. These are different things. Let me explain this by using an example. Suppose that I broke my leg and my, my bone cracked. Then after a couple of months of treatment and medication, all the wounds are healed. Okay? The bones are reconnected completely. And after taking an x-ray, the doctor is very sure that I'm all healed. Okay? Then it's my turn to fulfill my duty now, which is to take a test drive with my heel leg. So I need to walk a few steps to confirm, to make sure that my leg is healed. But however, these few steps I take only serves to make sure that my legs are fully healed. It doesn't have anything to do with the actual healing process, right? I was healed not because I took a few steps, not at all. I was healed because of the healing process the doctor has done. 
I didn't do anything to earn my healing. All I have done is to make sure the effect of my healing process. That's what happened with our calling and election from God. Yes, we are to live godly life. But living a godly life is not a prerequisite for our calling and election. Rather, living a godly life is to make sure that our calling and election is taking effect in our lives. Just like healing a broken leg. What's the point to heal if we don't even try to walk? Also, even if we are to take a couple of steps to test it, we then are to increase the intensity by maybe running a lap, jumping a few steps, or even kick a soccer or something to prove that our healing is in full scale. That's why the scripture calls us to grow in our virtues so that we can attest that our calling and election is in full scale effect. Peter said that a person who strives to live a godly life or a church that strives to live in godliness, to grow in godliness, will never fail, or will never fall, sorry. Never fall doesn't mean that we will not sin anymore. No. It doesn't mean we are perfect. It means that we will become spiritually firm, steadfast. That we will become God's fortified city, God's iron pillar, and God's bronze wall. We will no longer be a vulnerable and defenseless, defenseless community. Brothers and sisters of Vancouver Chinese Baptist Church. In the computer world, there are two kinds of reboot. One is called soft reboot, in, in which all you need to do is to click the restart, but, restart button, or the very famous control hit alt delete to restart. That's not too bad. The other one is called hard reboot. And this one is just frustrating. It happens when your computer freezes and it doesn't respond no matter how you click it. So you will need to either turn off the main switch or unplug the power cord or sometimes even the battery. Well, this kind of hard reboot is a bad sign. There's something wrong inside. Hard reboot is a warning. If you don't deal with it, the machine will die sooner or later. I'm not going to say what kind of reboot we need. It's just a parable after all. So we, we cannot take it literally. All I care about is what Jesus said in Revelation 5, which I quoted at the beginning of my sermon, that he urges us to repent and do the things we did at first. If we do not repent, he will come to us and remove our lampstand from his place. Repent is not just about a particular thing we have done wrong. Repent is a reorientation of our life. We need to repent as we drift away in our pursuit of, hope, of godliness. And by doing that, we can make our calling and election sure. For if we do these things, brothers and sisters, we will never fall. Why don't you join me now in a time of prayer? Dear merciful and gracious God our Father, we're thankful for your divine power 
and you have bestowed upon us unconditionally. But God, we also need to repent as we might have misused your power. We might have desired things that are pleasing to ourselves and pursue a life out of, your, out of our own pleasure. So God, help us, guide us, break us even so that we can reboot and be rebuilt into your godly image. We're here to cling on your promise that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. For this, we give thanks to you. And we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.